0: Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Mike McPeak, and with me today is Jeff Sire. Hello, everyone. And um, so I'll start by reading the uh, synopsis from the uh, imdb.com website. Uh, We're talking about Andromeda Strain today. Uh, so, uh, So here's the synopsis. A crack team of top scientists work feverishly in a secret state-of-the-art laboratory to discover what killed the citizens of a small town and learn how this deadly contagion can be stopped. My synopsis would be like, hey, let's go out, bring back a deadly uh, space organism to Earth. What could possibly go wrong?
1: (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) – it doesn't see, well. I guess they're just, they're just looking for anything, right? So any forms of back. life.
0: Yeah, and you, you don't know that it's going to be deadly, but I mean, all the yeah. precautions that they have in place, they have assumed it.
1: Well, uh, I guess it would have been okay if it wasn't for the moron uh, that opened the the canister.
0: Well, it would have been okay. Well, no, because once that thing started mutating and started eating through the uh, the rubber seals in the wildfire lab there. I think eventually it would have happened, no matter what, uh, uh, whether that moron opened it or not. There probably would have been a few more people alive, but uh, I think yeah. the outcome would eventually would have been the same, unless because it's exposed to something different, and would have mutated differently. But
1: yeah, there's there's an awful lot of stuff to uh, discuss on this one. Like there's a lot of of tech to this, and like not just the phony baloney kind of stuff, but this is. Plausible uh, plausible stuff.
0: Yeah, and, like, it, and for 1960, when was this?
1: 69, it was written, and the movie came out in 71. 71.
0: Yeah, um, you know, it, it's kind of, um, I guess we could call it quaint by today's standards, but back then it was cutting edge, edge technology. Uh, you know, looking back, we kind of go, you know, it, it looks a little funny, but like I say back at the time, it was all, you know, they were, you know, looking t- uh, towards the future here.
1: Yeah, and in the uh, the movie, anyways, they had a uh, thing at the start in the credits saying that uh, they thanked uh, some NASA lab and then the Jet Propulsion Lab. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if they might have even filmed part of it at some of their facilities or something.
0: Yeah, that could be. I don't think you'd be able to do that nowadays with heightened security concerns, but I'm sure back then that uh, NASA and those guys were always looking for a little uh, good publicity to help their cause and you know yeah. get more funding for them, so
1: something else that I thought you couldn 't do now with the uh the way it was filmed is like i'm sure <laughs> those uh the monkeys and the rats like they looked like they were really dying when they were exposing them to the virus yeah i know i that, don't yeah i don't think you would see that today
0: no i don't think they would film it, and i don 't know whether they did uh kill them um or if they just like you know gave him some gas to make him go to sleep, but they were they were twitching. I don't you know there was no acting yeah. involved there.
1: No. So and also there was uh, this isn't tech stuff, but uh, the scene when they got to the, the to the town Piedmont and they're going through and all the people are dead. I don't think you would see a, a scene filmed like that today. Like just the the people in all the the death postures and stuff like that. That was really creepy.
0: Well, for that time, certainly, because, you know, they, they were still pretty uptight about things. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, for, for a mainstream movie. Now, I do seem kind of re- to remember, and I don't know for sure when that came out, but there were movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre,
1: yeah.
0: which came out around that time, and, you know, that was just plain old graphic. Uh, like, say, the death poses, uh,
1: I don't know. Yeah, like, they were... I, i couldn't think of the last time I saw a movie like that where it was um like just all of the dead bodies lying around like it was it was really, really creepy
0: well, and they were trying to show that a lot of these people just died they uh yeah. they, e- they either died in one of two ways they either kind of died like mid stride they just kind of went <gasps> and keeled over, or they had some that
1: uh went it, crazy
0: yeah and and really uh, and committed suicide in really strange ways, like holding your head underwater. Um, I don't know anybody that um, you know would be able to hold themselves under until they they died. You'd need to be the body's natural reaction would be to come out and get breath. You'd have to be held under somehow.
1: Yeah, and they didn't really explain. Well, I didn't think they explained very well as to how, how they that guy was able to do that. Like it, I, I would think it had to be more than just he was going crazy.
0: Well, unless it overrode the body's reactions, um, because it made it sound like they they went, you know, insane. Um, so I suppose the insane person could maybe override the body's natural reaction. I, I yeah. don't know.
1: But, uh, like when they were going around the town, what was some of the stuff? They had, they were wearing those they weren't really space suits. They were kind of like, uh, um, Artificial environment suits or something like that. It protected them from whatever was in the air. They were right. Like, yeah, yeah,
0: it wouldn't have been a space suit, Yeah, because that would be f- built for pressure. But this one was built to keep the outside environment out.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So. Um, yeah, but they were. Yeah, they. So they were in town there. You know, they. The first team came to try and find the probe that came from uh, that they had sent up into the orbit to, to collect the. Uh, um, you know try to find a virus or you know a or I shouldn't say virus but uh, an organism there in space. And this was uh what scoop 7 so they sent like six yeah. others up and they hadn't found anything. Now this one came back down to earth and it must have collided with a uh an asteroid or some small thing that caused it to go uh, off target and then crash down to earth. Yeah. Um, so when they went to the town they located it by using radio beacons to home in on it. Um, and the first, you know, crew going in, the first two guys didn't know what they were up against. So they came into town, and you know, and they're just driving around. They see that uh, that old crazy guy going through town, uh, and they didn't know what happened. But then, you know, they all of a sudden they just died while the team was listening to their transmission. So then they knew something was up.
1: Yeah. Some of the stuff that they use. Um, this is one of the ones that I find really interesting because they, uh, it's it's far enough in our past that uh and they're trying to look like they're futuristic, but you can see how they thought some things were going to be big, and they obviously didn't turn out to be like they made such a big deal that oh these computers are all uh you know they didn't use the word network, but they're all like uh slave to this one central computer. Well, yeah, okay, big deal. <laughs> and then the the high-tech thing, oh, here's a light pen, and you can point at things on the screen and like, ooh, I'm sure in 1969, that would have been, oh, my God, that's so, you know, that's like magic.
0: <laughs> well, and me being the computer person, when they said they were all slaved off the one upstairs, on one hand, yeah, I realized it was a better allocation of resources, but on the other hand, if that one goes down, you're kind of screwed. Um, I yeah. like redundancy. Um And I realized at the time that computers were big and expensive and you tried to get as much out of one computer as you can. So, yeah, you would, uh, you know, do the thin client thing and connect many uh, computers to the one. But like I say, if that one went down and they didn't say anything about uh, any redundancy, I would hope that they had something there. But you were kind of at the mercy of that that one computer.
1: Well, not to mention their whole telecommunication equipment uh, system was taken down by a little piece of paper that fell down. Uh, on the bell ringer for their teletype.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a firm believer in Murphy's law, so I wouldn't, you know, okay, it was, I thought maybe a little hokey, but like I say, sometimes I always thought Murphy was an optimist anyway. But, uh, you know, so something like that, I went, okay, it could happen. But you would think that somebody would, you know, be checking. But, yeah, just a little piece of paper um, would keep these messages. But, you know, in the end, that turned out to be a good thing because, uh, if they had pushed for that, uh, was it um, uh, ordnance seven twelve or yeah? Uh, if yeah, they gone gone for that, they may have mutated that uh, uh, organism and caused it to spread all over the earth. So, and you know, it's one of those things that uh, a happy set of coincidences that uh, you know prevented complete
1: catastrophe. Exactly. So. What were some of the – oh, OK. That When they talked about that odd man hypothesis, were you able to find that anywhere else other than this thing?
0: Oh, no. Um, because uh, on the Wikipedia page here, it says it's a fictional hypothesis uh, oh, okay. ar- articulated in the novel story. Um, and they, they said they took the explanation from a Rand Corporation report that basically says that uh, – in a, a life or death situation like that, a single man is better able to make a more reasoned uh, decision. I think was the word that they used. Um, let's see. It states that a unmarried man, uh, unmarried men are better able to execute the best, most dispassionate uh, decisions in a crisis. So basically, they think they assumed um, that you know if it uh, is to save their own uh, hide or. Uh, uh, preserve humanity their uh, single man is supposed to be able to make a better decision I don't know I always thought that if a is going to save their hide it doesn't matter what sex or marital status is so
1: yeah I, when uh, when I read it in the book I thought this is like a ridiculously sexist <laughs> and a needlessly sexist thing here so yeah uh. yeah and
0: you know we were, this was the uh, you know sixties and seventies and you know the um you know, the sexual revolution and the uh, women's movement was just kind of, you know, still in its infancy yet, and still making waves. So I could see how that kind of thinking was, you yeah. know, probably—I I wouldn't say acceptable—probably prevalent
1: at the time. The the uh, female character in the movie that they they changed her to a uh, female, right? She, she was like the most annoying person ever. <laughs> Like just she, she couldn't just say no. I don't think that's right. She had to be like completely belittle whoever it was she was talking to, and just like ah, like, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine that the the lead guy saying, "Yeah, here's somebody I want on my team." Like, no, here's somebody that should be left in a room all by herself.
0: Yeah, and you know, like I said, it was changed from a man to a woman, and you know, again, you know, I will chalk it up to the times that maybe they thought that the only way. You know a woman could get to that position is by being strong and uh, to you know kind of be you know be willing to stand up to the um, men and they thought maybe the only way to do that was to have her be kind of sarcastic and kind of uh, uh, braggadocious and things like that.
1: But also she was the only one that I would say was incompetent because she she willingly she she knowingly hid the fact that she had epilepsy, uh, which which ended up jeopardizing the whole thing. She uh, she would uh, just kind of like bluff her way through stuff. Like yeah, like she was she was detrimental to the team in almost everything she was doing. I just thought it was just. <laughs> I don't think you would see a character like that today. Uh, well, what was it recently where they said? Oh, it was the uh, the new Star Trek movie where they said you know like okay. There's not a whole lot of female characters, and one of them, just for seemingly no reason whatsoever, in that movie, she just says, "Oh, I need to change my clothes and strip down to my underwear on this thing," like, and that, and you know, and that was a big deal. Like, you know, there was a lot of talk about that. I think if you if you made a movie like this today, where hey, there's the only these the only single female character in the whole movie is like the most annoying bitchy person, I think. There would be an awful lot said about your movie.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't know if they would have tried if they would have put a you know a sexy bimbo in there going to the other extreme. That wouldn't have been. I suppose they could have. I don't know. Tried something really radical and put like a competent, uh, assertive, without being bitchy woman in there. That yeah. would have been a would have been a choice.
1: Well, I guess that there was there was the nurse that was working with the uh, the one doctor, and she was she was fine. She was competent and everything. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, competent and compassionate and, you know, and she could still be strong uh, and assertive without, you know, being cranky.
1: But she was uh, also very much the assistant, not the, you know, like a lead hand, like uh, the, whatever her name was, the scientist was.
0: Yeah, uh, Levitt, I think her name was.
1: Levitt, yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, hey! I just thought we never mentioned why Julie isn't here. Just, oh. <laughs> Julie's not here tonight.
0: <laughs> we, oh, should,
1: we should say that.
0: Yeah, I guys kind of assumed, and you know, I kind of blew through the introduction there. But yeah, just uh, uh, things didn't work out for her. So yeah, she's not here today. So.
1: Yeah, so we've probably had people hanging on for 15 minutes, just waiting for <laughs> Julie to say something,
0: or yeah, screaming at the uh, iPod or whatever. Where is she? But yeah, okay. Uh, we're, we're there, like our duty, but not completely. Yes. So,
1: see, we're the opposite of the uh, the Andromeda strain. Is you and I are the incompetent ones, and uh, Julie's the only one that has any competence between the three of us. So,
0: yeah, that's true. <laughs> Unless, well, okay, I, I hit the record button, so we're okay. that far. So,
1: <laughs> so they also had the nuclear bombs. That uh, the one that they were going to drop on Piedmont, which they ended up not doing, and then the one that the whole. That was another thing that I thought was weird. That like, okay, I can see why you have, you know, uh, you have some sort of self-destruct system, but like in a biological, you know, in, environment like that, to put the nuclear bomb on the bottom
0: and blow it yeah, all up,
1: yeah, blow it all up in the air. Like that. Oh, okay, that doesn't seem to be exactly the best, you know, thing you could do.
0: <laughs> well. And I had a little quibble. You know, they put it out there in the desert because they said it was the most isolated area. Um, I've never been to Alaska, but I hear there's lots of open space up there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, okay, it's a movie. Let her go. But, like I said, they were. And they pointed out in the movie that the area that they're picked, you know, one side is what, L.A., another side is. um,
1: Phoenix is south, Las Vegas was north of there. I actually. Uh, I rode through there on a motorcycle trip. I left the Grand Canyon and I rode from southern Nevada up into Vegas. And while uh, that area, there's not a whole lot there, but there is stuff there. (laughs) Like there's towns and stuff. Like They said that they were 160 miles from, I think it was 160 miles from anything. I don't think there's an area where they were showing on that map where you'd be 160 miles from. From a town,
0: yeah, and even 160 miles. When you start dealing with airborne contagions, um, which you know is what they were anticipating uh, at some point, because that's why they went to all these precautions. Um, I don't know. I like, say I would have gone up to like northern Alaska or, or some place yeah. like that. Um,
1: oh, hey, come on up to Canada. We got tons <laughs> of nothing up here.
0: <laughs> well, not to feed your inadequacy, but
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. well, hey, what? Once you get to the Canadian border, like if you were coming up here, you've got about a 200 kilometer little buffer. That's where all all of us Canadians are huddled right next to your border. And then once you go north of that, there's a whole lot of nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I would think that's what you would want would be a whole lot of nothing for something like that. And like I say, even if they wanted to keep it in the United States, you know, Alaska up to the north there, I don't think you know there's a whole lot. So
1: I I have always thought that Canada we have really missed our opportunity. In that we should build uh, prisons in uh, the Northwest Territories or Nunavut and uh, just like fly the prison guards in and just uh, have like, uh, and we should uh, outsource uh, our, our prison facilities to anybody who wants them. And we should uh, take your prisons, because I know your prisons are overflowing down there in the United States, and we could uh, house your prisoners up in uh, the North. And if, you know, we don't even need walls. If you want to go for a walk, go ahead.
0: <laughs> you just freeze. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, either that or the bugs will get you in the summertime. So
0: that too. Um, yeah, one of the, th- the things that they had in the movie that you know, I, I guess back then it was kind of they it was kind of new, but you know the paper suits that they uh, they wore because uh, you know nowadays it's uh, not uncommon for people to wear paper overalls uh, uh, mm-hmm. at work. But um, uh,
1: yeah, at my job uh, because I, I work in a nuclear plant. Um, we have these things called Tyvex suits, which uh, Tyvex, you know, like the uh, stuff they use to wrap houses with. Right. Um, it's, it's like little uh, um, coverall suits that are made of that that you slide on over top of your clothes and that prevents any uh, radioactive contamination from getting on your clothing. And so then when you leave the uh, uh, radioactive work area, you just kind of peel these things off and throw them in the garbage. So and so that was essentially like like a uh, paper paper clothing.
0: Yeah, when I worked at the uh potato, uh chip plant here in town, we wore uh, I wore a uh, paper uh overalls for a uh, um uh, a couple days till they kind of realized it wasn't really going to work out that well, but the problem was they were white and I kind of ended up looking like the state puff marshmallow man, so that wasn't exactly <laughs> a good uh a good look. So um but uh, you know the, the the thing about the paper suits was that they would be able to uh, just take them off and uh, and burn them, which would hope, they would hope would contain the uh, uh, contaminants. So um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and then they would do the the body scanning, which would uh, I think kind of. Uh, you know, just see if uh, look for contaminants, see if there's anything wrong with the person themselves. I guess.
1: Yeah, they had really great animated uh, graphics of the of the people too. They were just like <laughs> little outlines with like X's and O's and numbers in them. So.
0: Yeah, or uh, yeah, the one I thought was kind of um, interesting when they would have them sit in those chairs. Um, and make sure all the X's are covered, and so everyone is making sure that they see. Them. I guess they wanted to make sure that they had everybody positioned correctly, uh. and, and all the bodies were in contact. But uh, it, yeah, it did seem a little, uh, a little odd.
1: See, we have like at again at my job, we have like palm scanners for uh, security, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they're kind of like – it's It's not your whole body again, but when you put your hand in, like it kind of flashes to make sure you have your hand in the right place, right? Your fingers in the right orientation. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like that.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, and they did have the hand and palm scanners for identity purposes, I
1: guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, those, those things are like uh, – those things are really, really, really accurate. Um, like I know when we first got them – there's guys that I know that uh, uh, bicycle to work, and they can go through the palm scanner with with uh, um, with bicycle gloves on or not on. It doesn't matter. Um, but it would still uh, – it takes so many measurements of your hand that even if you have something like uh, if you have those bicycle gloves on the palm of your hand and it doesn't recognize the palm, it still has enough measurements just from your fingers and your thumb that it can verify that it's you. Hmm. Yeah,
0: Because I was wondering what would happen if like you cut your hand and you had a scar across your hand. But apparently it must um, accommodate for that then.
1: No, it looks at the dimensions, at least oh. the ones that we have, the dimensions of your hand. So like how long your fingers are, how wide they are. And I think the one that we have, it, they said that it takes like 10,000 measurements each time you put your hand in. It's like a huge volume of uh, – it's called uh, hand geometry. And uh, it takes a huge number of uh, of uh, measurements of your hand, and then it's got a threshold for error so it'll say um, because you never ever go through it where it doesn't have errors so uh but it, it will look at it as like okay well, out of ten thousand measurements if uh, you have less than fifty errors, then that's so close that it must be you because you know sometimes your your finger might be a little bit twisted or something like they they will be out a little bit or sometimes you wear your wedding ring and sometimes you don't uh that kind of stuff um but uh it's like a percentage of error so like it'll out of all the measurements so long as you're you have less than like whatever the percentage is of error it can determine very very closely that it's you
0: yeah, I've I've never come in contact with anything like that. So that that would be kind of cool for you know uh, for me to experience sometime. But yeah. um, and the other you know cool piece of tech in there that you know it, when we get uh, you know the piece of tech that I would really want to have would be like the robotic arms. I thought that they yeah. were kind of cool to be using and being able to pick up things from. Um, and you know the way they were using them, well they they, they did did look kind of clumsy, like not the most you know, efficient thing in the world. Um but they did seem to work pretty good for what they were trying to do.
1: Yep. Yeah. They were pretty neat. And that was one of the scenes where I wondered if they uh if they'd actually filmed that at the jet propulsion labs because I think it looked like they were actually really manipulating the the robot arm. So I wondered if maybe that was something that was filmed at uh like at an actual lab. Mm. So
0: uh, yeah. Just because to watch them, you know, move like that, and um, I, you know, something like that would just be. I, I have kind of a mechanical mind sometimes, and just uh, to look at one of those and watch them work, it it, it looked kind of interesting, and you know, it'd be fun to play around with something like that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> see if you accidentally crush things, and <laughs> <laughs> well, when they like. I thought the the book and the movie were really really well done. Like remember when they uh, in the movie when they went to pick up the little little ast- asteroid or whatever it was the little tiny little rock, the pincers were obviously too big, so they had a smaller gripping thing that picked it up with tiny little tweezers, and then the the bigger pincers were holding that device, and that's something that like that's another thing that made me wonder of like maybe this is really a real actual lab cuz I don't think that's the kind of thing that they would have thought to do just on a, on a movie set
0: hmm. I mean I looked at it and you know I, I was looking at it, but not real close I guess to me it seemed a little unwieldy but maybe it would actually work and they were trying to pick up something that was just what a it wasn't a very big it was a speck was it
1: Yeah they said it was a little bit bigger than a grain of sand so
0: um yeah, because I know that they had to go to you know whatever magnification that they had to find that thing. Yeah, uh, which
1: was another thing. The just the uh, the camera system that they had was uh, was pretty amazing. Like uh, was kind of like a camera electron microscope altogether.
0: Yeah, with you know the uh, uh, you know un well, I guess I wouldn't say unbelievable. They had like what a thousand uh, x. Uh, what were they taking it to?
1: I think the highest one was fifteen hundred because they had to go to. That's why they had to move it. They had to take it to another lab because it, it. They had even more powerful cameras there.
0: Yeah, and then once they did that, then they put. Uh, uh, I guess once they isolated the um, the organism, then they what encased it in in plastic. Um, you know, they didn't really go into that a lot in the movie in the book it was uh, they went into it a little yeah. bit more, but they encased it in plastic, and then they just sat there and they were just cutting off real thin sheets of that stuff so they could put it under the atomic microscope to uh, be able to look at it
1: yeah
0: well then you know once they did isolate it, then they had to go through the uh, process they were trying to figure out how big this organism was, and so they had the different screens that they would uh, open to run the air through. And, and they finally figure out what it was a 2 micron.
1: Yeah, the it, like when they once they had the 2 micron filter it could get through. But uh like that whole that whole part of the book when they were determining uh how it was spread and uh you know the the mechanism of delivery and how big the uh, the particle was. That all seemed really realistic to me like it didn't yeah uh, you know, like a, it didn't seem fake.
0: Yeah, I mean it was um, it was believable. You know, the only thing um, you know once I watched the movie, I guess I kind of it made. Well, I guess I accepted it, but it was kind of like when they were getting towards the end there, and they were trying to figure out how the the baby and the old man survived. Um, yeah, I guess they finally decided that it uh, had to reside within a real narrow pH level, and so that uh, the guy who was drinking sterno. Um, you know, not a real good choice, but I mean, that's what he was doing, you know, and the thing that probably would have killed him (laughs) saved his life.
1: Did did you find it odd that each time they said, oh, this old guy's been drinking Sterno, nobody said, oh my God, this guy's been drinking (laughs) Sterno. They were completely clinical about it. They just, they were just like, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know, man. If somebody said, uh, oh, hey, this guy here is like, you know, he's he's, uh, addicted to Sterno, like, that would blow my mind.
0: Yeah, so. I don't know how you. Well, he called it squeeze. It was something like yeah. you put it in and you, what you you squeezed it out, or it had something to do with putting it in a cloth and squeezing it somehow. So uh,
1: I don't know. That just
0: um, I'll take. I, just,
1: the, I, I was just in shock.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and I'll take the word for it cause, I mean you know we've used sterno for you know fondue pots and that kind of stuff, and I don't know. You'd have to be pretty desperate. Well, I guess yeah, like.
1: At any time, did you ever say to yourself, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to drink this?
0: <laughs> well, you have to wonder how did they discover alcohol in the first place. Um, yeah. Well, I guess some animals probably eat something that got loopy and the guy said, well, you know, let's try try that. The one that I always thought was how did they discover that was um, there's a, uh, um, a toad that if you lick the back of it, it will uh, uh, produce hallucinogenic properties. Well, who yeah. the heck thought to lick the back of a toad?
1: Well, hey, whoever figured out how to eat a lobster – you know this is the ugliest thing that I've ever seen in my life, and if we eat it, it kills you uh but or or makes you very, very sick. But if you take it while it's still alive and dump it into boiling water and then pry it apart with a hammer and chisel, it's really good to eat like how did they ever get to that point?
0: yeah, I don't want to be part of that experimentation process yeah. um but yeah, so they uh and you know so the guy survived because he was drinking sterno, and the baby uh survived because uh he was bawling all the time, and I guess that uh did they both produce acidosis acidosis or
1: was- no they were they were opposite right. uh the old man was uh uh had acidosis because of the sterno, and the baby had uh uh geez, because it was crying all the time. It had too much carbon dioxide in its blood, so its blood was alkaline. Okay. And the and the uh, organism could only replicate in this t- very thin uh, sliver of pH, and the the old man and the baby were on opposite sides of it.
0: I I mean it's a convenient plot device, but yeah, I don't know it. That seems I don't know a little well, a little too convenient. Uh, Possibly, or the fact that it just kind of conveniently mutated, and then the whole Earth was safe. Um.
1: So that, like, there—I uh, know that there are things that only can exist in a very, very, you know, very thin slice of uh, of whatever conditions, right? So that that part didn't uh, didn't kind of stress my. Uh, uh, belief it was just the the thing that I thought was pretty crazy was how quickly this thing was mutating it was just mutating all the time right
0: right and you know it was uh, it was a different form of life it was what, crystalline uh, in nature yes. yeah so it didn 't have uh it didn 't have any of the amino acids it didn 't have DNA any of that uh, I guess what they said in the in both the book and the movie that uh each cell was its own. Process, I guess, or each uh, each crystal or whatever it was was its own process.
1: But but that's uh, like w- if you read about uh, what is the definition of life, um, crystals are in that right because cr- cr- well, crystals are one of the things that they say simulates um, life because it can they can self replicate and they can do a, a lot of these things that. Uh, are generally what we define as life, right? So.
0: Yeah, uh, growing and multiplying, I guess. I, I don't know exactly what the official uh, definition of life is. But, um, yeah, I guess as long as it uh, shows some of the properties. So, you know, I guess it's it's believable enough. Um, I, I couldn't find anything that was too, you know, far-fetched, you know, except, like I said, the, the, the beginning – well, yeah, you know, I guess it was. They were looking for weapon, uh, biological weapons uh, material, um, and that's why they were sending the the probes out in the space. Well, you know, ostensibly it was to find extra, extraterrestrial life, but you know, I think since some of the funding came from the government, the military probably had their fingers in it, and was looking for a good biological device. Uh, because I remember during the eighties they were talking about the neutron bomb, which would, you know, basically kill the uh, any living matter there, but leave the buildings intact, so that you wouldn't have to rebuild cities. You could just bring your own people in and repopulate it.
1: Right. Um, I was just looking at the definition of life, and it it. Uh, in wikipedia it says it's a challenge for scientists and philosophers to define life in unequivocal terms this is difficult partly because life is a process not a pure substance any definition must be sufficiently broad to encompass all life with which we are familiar and must be sufficiently general to include life that may be fundamentally different from life on earth so that's one of it kind of falls into the uh the thing about what makes us uh, uh, human or like what makes us sentient, Like at one point I know they used to say, well, you know, in order, the the thing that makes us different from animals is that we're self-aware. Well, you know, they found out, oh, dolphins are self-aware. Dolphins uh, can be seen. And then they said, okay, well, it's uh, tool use, you know, the fact that we can use tools. Well, then you say, okay, well, There's certain apes that use tools. The uh, the hermit crab, uh, you know, hauls around this uh, shell that it uses um, to make its home in. That's a tool. And okay, well, it can't be that. And so they kind of have to keep redefining in order. And but then you have to ask, okay, well, if you have some, uh, you know, obviously like human who's who's born with mental handicap that can't do these things, well, does that mean they're no no longer human?
0: So yeah, the um, the mission log podcast ter- uh, coined a term that I kind of like. They called uh, carbon chauvinism that we seem to <laughs> think that um, life will be carbon based. Well, this book, uh, this movie, and book said, "Hey, you know, it could be uh, uh, crystalline in nature. It may not uh, have the same components as what we have. And we may yeah. not necessarily recognize it."
1: Yeah, that's very true. You know, like, I think I've said it on the show before. That I think that. Uh, um, w- if or when we encounter life, uh, extraterrestrial life, I think one of the biggest challenges will, will be for us to recognize it in the first place. That because it it could very well be so different from us that we don't even initially recognize it as life.
0: It could be just something as simple as pure energy that uh, um, yeah. just you know is traveling through space, and we would just you know dismiss it as an anomaly of some sort.
1: What's the uh, thing from uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? A self-aware shade of the color purple?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Who, who knows?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very true. So do we have any other tech that we haven't talked? We talked about most of the stuff we've got written down in the notes here.
0: Yeah, I mean, they did have the the mass spectrometer uh, that they used uh-huh. for analyzing a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, and that's a, a commonplace thing now in uh, a lot of crime shows. Uh, uh-huh. I don't know how commonplace it is in real life, but, you know, a lot of crime shows uh, have these things. That they, you know, mass spec, and they go and, you know, run it through, and they derive all this, you know, mystical information from it.
1: But um We have those at my work, and, like, I can't tell you how they work. I just know that, like, you... Send in samples to the lab, and then they'll tell you what the 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 gas or liquid that you dropped off, what it's made up of um, but I have no idea how they worked
0: <laughs> and I was just kind of curious when uh they came into being or you know when they were you know developed because I don't know if this was a new technology for you know that uh that time or not but
1: I think they probably – mass spectrometers probably would have been developed in the 50s, I'd assume. So I think they've been around for a little while because they would have been coming around about the same time they were coming up with particle accelerators. So.
0: Um, yeah, because yeah. it, it, well, it just analyzes uh, the color spectrum? Is that uh,
1: No, it takes a look at the atomic – I believe it looks at the atomic weight of the different uh, things. So the idea is that they ta- you take uh, a sample – and then the mass spectrometer will tell you um the elements that are in that sample so like the different uh and they they somehow do it by the atomic weight of the different elements in there okay. uh they could very well do it by stimulating it and then seeing what light is emitted cuz then they could tell what atoms are in it or so they I, I but i don't i don't know the means that they use to determine those atomic weights um But they can even tell isotopes and stuff like that, too.
0: Well, according to Wikipedia, the first uh, uh, application of a mass uh, spectrometry uh, to analyze the amino acids and peptides was reported in 1958. Oh, there you go. So it's been around a while. And Hmm. um, without reading the whole explanation, I don't know if I can see right offhand how it does it, but... uh, Oh, uh, well see a mass spectrometer consists of three components ion source mass analyzer and detector um, so the ionizer converts a portion into ions um, and then they must uh, depending upon the phase solid liquid or gas of the sample and the uh, so apparently they ionize it and then they read it uh, to determine what's what the chemical properties of it all are okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I'll have any of those uh, that anytime soon. <laughs> and I don't know what I'd do with one if I had it anyway. But, um, mm. you know, I said I wanted the arms. Was there anything in this movie that kind of grabbed you? Hmm. Or... Well, I'm some not of this...
1: sure. I didn't see. Uh, no, I didn't really see anything that I would well, like to have.
0: Well, one uh, to one degree or another, I suppose you come in contact with some of this stuff um, at work. Yeah. So yeah, I probably really wouldn't. Uh, uh,
1: nothing. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the computers that I have. I know that I don't <laughs> want their computers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it would, you'd be able to heat your house with them. Well, your, it would probably. be your house. Probably. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You know, I think we pretty much uh, you know covered anything. You don't have any final thoughts or?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I would uh, recommend um, anybody like audio book that I got to listen to it was only maybe three or four hours long so it was quite short and the movie um, I'd recommend anybody who's interested in sci-fi to watch the movie I don't think it uh, holds up especially well especially the tech end of it because uh, but but at the same time I found it very very interesting because the, the things that they're talking about that are, that they consider very high tech are very low tech now for us
0: oh yeah um, I would, yeah, I would call the movie believable enough, um, and as long as, like I say, don't worry too much about, uh, you know, uh, if you don't nitpick it too much, you know, the movie is, it, it, you know, it's entertaining, it's suspenseful enough, and um, you know, it, it, I would say overall, it's, it wasn't too bad a
1: movie. Yeah, I liked it a lot.
0: Okay, well, you know, I guess if there's nothing else, that wraps up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at scifitechtalk.com uh, or follow us at Twitter on uh, at scifitechtalk. If you have any ideas or comments, please send them to scifitechtalk uh, at gmail.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Uh, Jeff, where can people find you?
1: People can follow me on Twitter at Broncosire, S-Y-E-R. And uh, you can see my uh, daily ramblings on Twitter.
0: Okay, and I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have an about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. And that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.